You're listening to Travaux, Episode 1, Part 2. And we're your hosts, Tim Patterson, Veronica Bognat, and Kayleen Kosla. If we could step back from the election for a moment and take a broader look at the last four years, I think we'll see that President Trump has ignored a lot of longstanding democratic norms. Those are small d democratic norms. For example, he has used the presidency to enrich himself. He's engaged in nepotism. He's rejected congressional oversight. He's ignored subpoenas. He's tried to appoint judges who are going to be loyal to him. And in light of all this norm breaking, we asked Professor Keitner and Professor Ross, is the United States still a functioning democracy? Yes. Uh, however, I think that we are in a more precarious position than many of us either had realized or had cared to admit. Uh, and to the extent that we have not had sort of a full exercise of the franchise, probably ever, right? I mean, if you think again, historically about the exclusion of Blacks and women from voting, if you look at the continued difficulties of access to the ballot box among registered voters, let alone those who are are having trouble registering. If by functioning democracy, we mean full participation in elections by the entire electorate, we've never had that. Uh, And we've actually had the opposite and we've had abysmally low voter turnout rates, even among people who are registered and can get to a voting booth. However, uh, I think we, have seen a greater willingness, and again, at least in my lifetime, right? I mean, it's not to say there haven't been past, uh, you know, very, very corrupt and dangerous presidencies. People talk about Andrew Jackson's presidency uh, in that in that vein. Um, so I'm not, I'm not here speaking as a historian, but speaking as as someone who's a, a sort of contemporary witness to the events that you and I are both living through. I think the the explicit willingness to disregard what we characterize as norms, you know, rather than laws. Um, And and the laws are a separate piece and and there've been plenty of violations of those uh, more on the corruption side, I think, than on the election integrity side. But if we even just look at norms, right? And the willingness of, again, current GOP senators and those in this White House and this administration to cast aside the constraints under which political representatives of both parties have traditionally labored, uh, that that is a real problem. That is a real problem. And so uh, coupled with the fact that we're now seeing uh, tremendous pressure on things like social media platforms to provide uh, or to amplify, right, disinformation in the name of free speech, uh, I think it's you know we we really are at risk of becoming a much more autocratic state, but I don't think we're there yet. Well, Professor Ross had a slightly different answer to this question. I do not think we are in a state of a functioning democracy. Um, Wow. I, don't, I don't think it's been a little while since we can say we've had a functioning democracy. You know, um, you know, I think that I don't want to put us to a too high of a standard in terms of democracy and what it requires. But 
something that if you look at um, sort of three factors in a democracy, participation, responsiveness, inclusiveness, and then a fourth factor, which goes to separation of power point, which is the avoiding of concentration of power in any particular institution of government. Mm-hmm. With respect to participation, you know, the American has been a rather dysfunctional democracy for about a century now. Our participation in the most highly salient presidential election is around 60% of the voting age population. That's a good election, right? And so that's that's not necessarily a great sign in terms of a health of a democracy when you compare it to others. Um, why aren't people participating? Well, there's sometimes barriers to voting, but a lot of times it's a sense that you know, there's no reason to vote. There's, there's, the system is not made for me. Um, there's no one being responsive to my particular interests. And it's no accident kind of turning to the third point before going to the second, that our democracy is not particularly inclusive. If you look at the gaps in participation, the wealthy vote 30% more than the poor. And Mm -hmm. the reason for that is because Partially the cost barriers to voting, don't get me wrong, election day as a holiday would help things. But I think a lot of this has to do with poor voters not seeing the system as being responsive to their interests or need at all. And so they see no benefit from voting, so they choose not to vote. And so when you have this sort of very um, uninclusive democracy, that's that's not a sign of a health democracy. And then you look at responsiveness, right? And why are these poor voters feeling that way? Because data shows and statistics show that they should feel that way. What studies have shown um, by political scientists is that when it comes to responsiveness, politicians are very responsive to the wealthy and not responsive to anybody else with respect to policy. And the only way you get policy path that's favorable to you is if your views align with those of the wealthy class. So mm-hmm. to the extent that you see politics working in that way, that's not a healthy democracy. A democracy should be one that's responsive to everyone, right? Not just to a particular economic class of voters. And then finally, you see this aggrandizement and concentration of power in the executive branch. Now, this is not new with Trump, but I will tell you what's unique. Now, the imperial imperial presidency, which is something that Arthur Schlesinger described Mm -hmm. kind of era since the founding is one in which has been happening over time through foreign affairs um, um, practices. The president has been able to aggrandize and, 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 and exercise more power, more and more power um, with each administration, it seems. But what's happened recently is the increasing concentration of power with respect to domestic functions, right? That was mm-hmm. a functional area where we thought Congress would always maintain a chucking function and maybe even a predominant role in deciding domestic policy. But that's even shifting over time with the more recent example being the president's diversion of the power of the purse um, from Congress to build his wall, right, against congressional wishes, Mm -hmm. um, asserting that it's based on an emergency. Um, And so these exercises of power and concentration of power are very unhealthy um, um, features of a democracy because it undercuts the idea um, that our system is one of rule by law rather than rule by arbitrary will. When power is concentrated into a particular individual and institution, the threat that the rule will be by arbitrary will than by law increases. And I think that that's my particular concern going forward. And it's concerned whether Biden comes into office or Trump goes comes into office because there is a self-interest in the presidency maintaining those powers because you can do a lot with that power. Right. Mm -hmm. But there has to be a president that's exercising some self-restraint, some willingness to um, share power in ways that would be healthy to our democracy for allow us to become a more functional democracy. While there's a lot of overlap there, Professor Keitner seems to take a historical, more optimistic approach. 
emphasizing factors like social media, like particular actors, that play a role in catalyzing a decline in democracy. But in diagnosing some relevant factors, Professor Keitner gives us a bit of hope that this demise is reversible. Professor Ross, on the other hand, holds an interpretive and constitutional lens to concentrations and exercises of power in domestic functions, exclusion of certain populations, and what he labels rule by arbitrary will that is characteristic of today's and arguably yesterday's America. I completely agree. Professor Keitner was certainly a bit less willing to condemn the current state of our democracy than Professor Ross, but what I really found interesting was where our conversation went after that. I then focused our discussion on the topic of nationalism, and Professor Keitner appeared much more strong in explaining how the rise of nationalism is acting as a serious threat to democracies across the globe. She also highlighted the role that leaders, such as President Trump, are playing in adding to this rise. Take a listen to her full response here. Every country has its own particular history, right, that is going to inform the particular dynamics of the sort of in-group, out-group um, battles that, that tend to manifest themselves at the ballot box and in other areas of policy. I think in Canada, certainly there's a long legacy of um, reckoning with the Canadian past and mistreatment of, of Aboriginal and Indigenous peoples, uh, which certainly also we have in the United States, but here, uh, obviously, a, a much greater focus on uh, at least in, in terms of popular rhetoric, although you know we, we still have a legacy of um, expropriation of Aboriginal lands to deal with as well. But absolutely, as you said, that the legacy of slavery, and I think uh, that is something that both Democratic and Republican administrations have not sufficiently confronted. Uh, similarly, right in France, you've got the continued legacy of French colonialism in North Africa. So again, you know, every country is is dealing with with different versions, I think, of this problem of how to define an inclusive polity. But just with respect to the United States, I think it, it really is difficult because, well, for two reasons, right? One is people's identities are, um, sometimes they feel that they're easily threatened, right? And so I think We've seen overcompensation in some arenas, including in some spaces in higher education where uh, it's even difficult to have a conversation because you're afraid of offending anybody, right? And so, you know, we're all struggling to, to achieve uh, some sort of um, modus vivendi where we can acknowledge uh, and really reckon with, so not just pay lip service to past and ongoing injustices, while at the same time, um, and, and I mean, I know it sounds trite, but I mean, it, in all seriousness, at the same time, moving forward, right? This exclusionary vision of American nationalism does attract, to my mind, a surprising amount of support, right? And I think that, you know, historically in Europe, and I, I'm going to get my numbers wrong because I haven't looked at these in a while, but, you know, the far right parties have run at maybe five to seven percent of the electorate. Right. And, and they've they've started to poll higher and they've become more mainstream. Uh, and the same is happening here. And so whether folks support the current administration, you know, because they like uh, lower taxes and again, by they, I mean, 
you know, anyone making over $400,000 a year, right? Because those are the folks who, who would stand to pay higher taxes under a Biden administration, uh, or because they feel like, like they have been um, unfairly sidelined by an excessive emphasis on things like racial and ethnic identity in whether it's college admissions or, you know, appointments to various sorts of of other jobs. And, and so they feel that as kind of a personal injury, a personal resentment. I mean, there, there are just um, more of those folks than I'd like to think there would be uh, in 2020. And, you know, just, you know, even if Democrats win at the ballot box, uh, again, that's going to be a big segment of the U.S. population that, that can't be ignored. Uh, and that is going to, to somehow have its needs, you know, either met or redefined. Um, so, so that challenge is going to remain. My sense is that race is the biggest factor or a very big factor in how many people choose to align with a particular political party. So I asked Professor Ross what he thought about that. I mean, I think it's pretty remarkable when you think that when you saw the tragedies that happened with respect to Breonna Taylor, George mm-hmm. Floyd, many others, that we as a country, despite irrespective of our partisan affiliation, couldn't come to an agreement on a simple message that Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find that to be extraordinarily remarkable. It's not particularly controversial. It shouldn't be controversial, at least. It's just saying that Black Lives Matter just like any other life matters, right? And and we should be protecting Black lives like we protect any other lives. And yet we couldn't come to that um, agreement. And what you see with respect to um, a reason for it is the very sort of racial partisan sorting that you describe. And I attribute this rise in racial partisan sorting with the Obama presidency. The Obama presidency um, represented a racial threat, either um, explicitly felt by some and some implicitly felt by others. Um, there is a sense that our racial order had been disrupted by the fact that there is an African-American in the White House. And the Tea Party, which ran on this um, position of small government, also had kind of racial undertones. Their attacks on Obama policies and, and views had sort of uh, a racial tinge to them, and they sought to um, appeal to those who may be feeling the sense of racial anxiety that could be a product of you know prejudice, or it could be a product of economic anxiety. It could be a product of whether sort of they how they fit into the society going into the future. And so the Tea Party played in on these particular notions and attracted support in the 2010 election, which was a landslide, a landslide that was completely unanticipated, not in the sense that Republicans won seats, that was expected, but the number of seats that they won. And all prediction models, based on what you pump into these prediction models, based on variables such as economic performance, unemployment, et cetera, predicted a Republican victory, but not to the extent that we saw in 2010. And others are now starting to suggest that the reason why we saw that uh, extra margin of victory was because race was a a factor that influenced um, voting decisions in ways that were not previously anticipated. And so the Republican Party has seemed to have made the choice that our path to the future, our path to sort of preserving power is to play on and to make more salient race, racial resentment, racial anxiety um, as a means to secure votes and support in a changing sort of 
world in a changing country. And I see that as kind of perhaps um, the path that led, I think that's part of the reason for the rise of Donald Trump, right? He played on that through birtherism first and then through Mm -hmm. um, outright sort of racism next. Mm -hmm. And and that continues to be kind of the campaign he motivates, that motivates, that's the motivation for his campaign right now. And so his supporters are driven by those same concerns, right? And Mm -hmm. that racial partisan sorting is now at the core of our politics today. Well, now that in 2020, Barack Obama is not in the White House and he's not on the ballot, and we see Joe Biden uh, at least talks about trying to attract moderate Republicans or, or swing or centrist voters. Do you think that in the, in the absence of Barack Obama in the election that we could see a, a reduction in sort of that, that racial tension? Or do you think that's gonna, that racial tension will persist regardless of who's on the ballot? I think it all depends on whether um, Trump wins this election or not. Um, Trump recognizes that his path to power and his appeal is based on racial resentment, racial anxiety. And he will continue to play on that post-2020 if he wins this election, irrespective of the fact that Biden was on the ballot, because they'll just Mm -hmm. emphasize that Kamala Harris was also on the ballot. Mm. That will be the most important salient point of that particular election, that there was a black woman that was going to be, you know, one heartbeat away from the presidency, right? Which, you know, strikes um, sense of fear and anxiety in some yeah. Americans. And so I see that as a path forward. It will be interesting to see if, if Trump ultimately loses. Um, Republicans will be in the same decision point as they were in 2008, 2009, when they decided to go sort of the racial resentment path. They could have gone the path that we need to broaden our brand. We need to appeal to non-white voters. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the viewpoint of an important segment of the Republican Party. And that was the path that they were going to take until the rise of the Tea Party. Now, they'll be in the same situation in 2020 if Trump loses. Do you try to expand your brand or do you try to sort of tap into racial resentment, recognizing that those you can tap into are a shrinking part of our population? And therefore, what you have to do in addition to to trying to attract the racial resentment voters is try to shrink the electorate. That's the sort of plan, voter suppression, racial resentment are sort of part and parcel with each other as part of the Republican strategy. I don't think it's sustainable in the long run. And Mm -hmm. so you would hope that they would would shift course if they lose. But, you know, that was a thought in 2008 as well, and it didn't happen. So that brings us almost to the end of this episode. If you've listened this far, you are probably waiting for a prediction. It's, It's time for predictions, right? So here's what Professor Ross and Professor Keitner predicted about the 2020 election? We shouldn't trust them entirely. Um, I do think that there's maybe a little bit less to worry about this year than four years ago in the sense that for two reasons. First, the pollsters did make adjustments um, to their polling and the way they went about polling um, in a way they think that will lead to more accurate results this time. And a second thing is the polls have been so stable Mm -hmm. and the stability of the polls despite everything that's happening, right? Sample after sample after sample are returning similar results in each state, um, suggests that they're perhaps more reliable. As 538 um, says that it's not about for any 
any particular polls. It's about the average of all polls. And if we have this adjustment, we have this consistency, then perhaps we can still count on them. But we also have to remember they are still only samples, right? They're still only samples of population. And there's a huge margin. There's margins of error that vary, sometimes quite large, sometimes smaller. And often, even though they're stable, these, um, these advantages still fall within the margin of error. And so it's not necessarily that the polls are getting them wrong. They're just within the margin of error. And therefore, they can go either way. And so the people, in terms of making their voting decisions as, about, as, to, as to whether to vote or not, should not rely on the poll. Do not assume <laughs> it in the bag. And therefore, I am not going to go vote. Go vote for your candidate because your candidate will, um, like, might need your vote. Um, and so I think it's important not to sort of weigh the polls too heavily in any particular voter's decision calculus about whether to turn out or not. There are so many, it's like you're in a choose your own adventure book, right? There's so many different <laughs> uh, twists and turns that I think we, we might see in the next weeks and even months. Uh, and, you know, part of the problem with the sort of old um, infotainment industry is precisely that, you know, more twists and turns get more clicks, right? So I think there's also going to be a, a tendency to dramatize whatever's going on, maybe a little bit beyond uh, what's warranted. So number one, I think it's entirely conceivable that we will have a clear result on election night. Uh, if there is a uh, sufficient voter turnout, and quite frankly, if enough purple states uh, end up voting blue, uh, at least at the top of the ticket, because we have seen uh, numerous former Republican officials coming out in support of Joe Biden for this election, uh, the Lincoln Project, which has been much maligned from both sides, but definitely represents uh, a very credible position of folks who are uh, politically conservative but believe in things like truth and uh, integrity. And so, you know, I have no doubt that that those folks are going to go back to fighting policy battles with, with Democrats, you know, the minute somebody's in office. But I do think that there are reasons to believe uh, that kind of the, the sane center uh, may, uh, even though they, they may make strange bedfellows with each other in some ways, uh, could create a decisive result in this election, even on November 3rd. However, whatever happens, there will be litigation. Uh, some cases may indeed work their way up to the Supreme Court, whether they'll be uh, as decisive as the Bush v. Gore litigation ultimately was, will of course depend on how wide uh, a margin the presumed victor has. So it's all going to it's really all going to come down to margins, because, again, even if there's some follow on litigation, if that follow on litigation wouldn't materially affect the result, in other words, you know, who, who does or doesn't make it to 270 electoral votes, then sure, that litigation will play out. And I'm sure it will play out with respect to down ballot races as well. Um, but it won't fundamentally put in question uh, who will be on the White House uh, come January 20th. That said, even if there isn't significant doubt or litigation about the top of the ticket. And again, you know, they're, they're very well, maybe. Uh, we can well expect that uh, if President Trump is the presumptive loser, he will 
claim election fraud. And so the, the real question in that scenario will be uh, how the media reacts to that, how President Trump's supporters react to that, um, whether he tells them to stand back uh, or whether he says, uh, you've been standing by, now's the time to, to reclaim you know, your version of your country. Um, and, and I do think to bring it back to the international perspective, the world is watching. Um, they're watching to see whether the electorate affirms a more inclusive or a more divisive vision of America. Um, and I will make one prediction, by the way. I mean, Joe Biden will win the popular vote. Uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. Al Gore won the popular vote. So I think that that is, I would be very surprised if, if I, I think the only question there is by how many millions of votes. Uh, but, but of course, as we know, what matters for uh, you know, the, the outcome is, is the Electoral College. Uh, and so I think that uh, the world is watching both to see you know, which version of America American voters embrace, um, but also how political leaders on both sides of the aisle respond and react after the election. And again, I think the more disinformation, incitement we see, the more that gives uh, similarly inclined leaders in other countries a green light to do the same. And the more uh, belated as it may be, <laughs> restraint and uh, commitment to the rule of law, we see the more hesitant other leaders might be to go in that direction, uh, especially understanding that uh, hopefully there will be a recalibration of, of tone and values uh, in the new year. There you have it. That's it. We're at the end of the episode. If you haven't already voted, go out and vote. You need to vote. Thank you for listening. Trevo is brought to you by Keeling Kosla, Tim Patterson, and Veronica Bognat at the Berkeley Journal of International Law. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please write to us. You can write to us at berkeley.travaux at gmail.com. That's berkeley.travaux at gmail.com. That's our email. You can write to us. We're committed to bringing you international and comparative law, news, and insight. But our podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. This is not legal advice. I'm not your lawyer. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be current.